I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at rainnetwork.com. Welcome to this episode of RAIN's Essential Geopolitics podcast. Today I will be speaking with RAIN's Senior Middle East and North Africa Analyst, Ryan Bull, about the key structures behind the Israel-Hamas conflict and what it can tell us about the likely future developments on the issue. Hi Ryan, glad to have you back on the podcast. Hi Emma, thanks for having me. To start us off, we kind of want to preface today's conversation with the acknowledgement about like the intensely complex circumstances surrounding the issue. For the sake of time, we are going to start in the early 1900s, but we want to clarify that there are still uh, important aspects of this conflict that stem from events that happened thousands of years ago. Um, just want to kind of put that out there before we start. But Ryan, do you want to kick us off with a bit of background? Yeah, so what we're going to do today is a little bit different for our podcasts, where we're going to talk about the structures of this conflict and the way that these kind of deeper geopolitics affect things, constrain behavior, cause actors to uh, behave in almost compulsive ways. And, and the best way for us to start that is by framing the geography of this space, which is a very small space uh, for most people, actually. It's an Israel itself, including the West Bank, the former mandate, is about the size of New Jersey, maybe a little bit bigger than that, which in the US is one of our smaller states for our international listeners. It isn't a very big geography. And as a result, these divisions that have emerged over time can create much more heated conflict than other territorial disputes in different places. Once you have a, a group of people that are divided along ethnic or religious or political lines, if they're crammed into a smaller space the way that Israelis and Palestinians are, that makes conflict more likely and, and more sustained because it's over such a, a constrained location. And it's even important to note that in terms of habitability, really uh, one of the reasons that the Gaza Strip even exists is because just south of Gaza is the beginning of the Negev Desert and the Sinai Desert, places that are, without modern technology, relatively uninhabitable, low water resources, uh, very hot temperatures, and that has always pushed populations towards the Mediterranean coast. And so understanding that geographic structure helps us put into understanding about why this conflict keeps re-emerging, about why it seems to be happening over and over again over the same geography. It's because it's a small location. It's because uh, there's limited habitability. It's because there's some natural barriers that frame it. So the Sinai Desert on the west helps frame its western border, and the Negev Desert in the south puts the, the, the southern frontier. The Jordan River on the east is another frontier that's natural, and if you decide to push past the Jordan River, which you know ancient uh, uh, kingdoms used to do, and the Crusader states and the Romans, they all decided to push past that location. Um, you run into the Arabian Desert there, and then that frames the eastern frontier. And then in the north are a series of mountains that begin in Lebanon. There's also the Syrian Desert. And so when we look at the borders, it actually has that geographic almost predetermination as to this is the location of, of what it would become eventually Israel and Palestine. So that's one of our basic things that we need to understand about why this keeps happening cyclically over and over again is because of that geographic frame that from there, a lot of our other state behaviors uh, then grow out of. Um, 
And I think what we can then jump to from understanding that basic geography, which has basically made it so that powers from the Romans, the Byzantines, to the Arabs, to the Ottomans, to the Crusaders, and eventually to the British, keep drawing the frontiers on roughly the same lines for this region. It, it's because of that geography. And so when the British took over this territory in World War I, they didn't have an intention to take over Palestine, as it was referred to at, at that time, as a permanent colony, because the British themselves were in a different phase of imperialism. And they were in a phase of which they were a bit like missionaries, and they were looking for greater goods, so to speak, to justify the empire, uh, which had been founded for commercial and, and, and strategic purposes. But by that point, British aristocrats were looking for something deeper to ideologically hold together an empire that was being pulled apart by a surge of nationalism on, on various fringes. And so when they took control of Palestine, one of their justifications for holding it was to create this homeland for the Jewish people in Europe which was going to solve two problems from the British perspective. One, it was going to help ideologically justify their empire. Look, they were building themselves a new state uh, for, for a people who had been oppressed throughout European history uh, since the, the Roman Empire. And the other, of course, was some latent anti-Semitism, which is that British aristocrats also wanted to send uh, Jewish population of Europe somewhere else, anywhere else, that, that besides uh, staying within England, staying within Europe. That had all been uh, something that was still latently part of their minds. So it, it solved that humanitarian impulse that was developing in the late empire. And it also, of course, assuaged some of those anti-Semitic impulses. But there was a, yeah, Emma, go ahead. Um, well, I just wanted to ask, is this kind of, was the British um, kind of push to have uh, the area as um, a place where Jewish people could go back to, was that kind of coinciding with the birth of Zionism or were they separate but connected um, kind of ideas that came about and happened to have the same end goal? Well, I think they are connected in that this was a time period in European history in which nationalism, which had come out of the Enlightenment in, in Europe in the 18th century, this idea that people were attached to their land, to their geography, in a deep like blood and soil sort of way is, is how it eventually kind of culminated. Um, but the idea that you were attached not to your king or to your government, but, but to a piece of territory had started to spread throughout Europe and it started to spread to European colonies. And most notably here in the United States, it helped create this, this American nationalism out of these disparate 13 colonies. Um, Americans didn't invent nationalism. It was brought over from Europe. And it was also something that was happening to a lot of Jewish thinkers at the time through the 19th century. So as nationalism as an idea was spreading through Europe, a lot of Jewish intellectuals were saying to themselves, okay, are we European? Or do we belong in Germany or France or, or uh, in England or Italy? Are we part of these, these, uh, these budding nationalities? Or do we need to find a different place for ourselves? And a lot of governments, as they led this process of nationalism to increase their own state power, because nationalism is, is a deep driver of geopolitical power. It gets your people to sacrifice for long periods of time in pursuits of, of strategic advantages. Uh, a lot of countries were defining nationalism to exclude uh, Jews. And we saw that that was the natural escalation of that was what Germany and Italy would eventually do during World War II. Um, but that was latent anti-Semitism that always saw Jewish people as something of, the, of a continental other. So Jewish intellectuals were concluding that they needed to have their own homeland somewhere else as they were starting to accept the idea of nationalism as part of their own identities. At the same time, as this was spreading throughout the British Empire, this nationalist idea was spreading to India, it was spreading through parts of Africa, 
That was part of the reason that these British intellectuals and aristocrats were saying we need to have something better than just brute force and commercialism to hold the empire together. If we're going to hold all these budding nationalities that are building up throughout our empire altogether, um, then we need to have some better ideology. And so they indulged the Zionist movement that began to form in the late 19th century, mostly in Central Europe, but but throughout you know, the Austrian Empire, the budding German Empire, uh, places like France, and they started to say, well, we can kind of kill two birds here with one stone. We can build a new ideology to hold the empire together, but we can also do this in a way um, that, that gives this population that other countries don't really want as part of their national fabric a place to go. And, 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 and in that sense, it was, they were related in that sense. And that kind of gives us a, a setting for why the British decided to allow widespread immigration into this territory once they had conquered it uh, from the Ottomans at the end of World War I. Thanks, Ryan. That makes a lot of sense. And can you touch on, I know you were starting to talk about it, but like how the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire kind of plays into migration patterns and people, um, I guess, kind of how this informs kind of this, um, all the different already complicated aspects of this conflict. Right. And, and it's important to note that at the time, Settler colonialism, as it's called kind of now, the idea of relocating people from one place to another, was something that a lot of countries did all the time. It was it was very normalized state behavior, that this is how you, you created lasting power in a place, would move populations or to encourage populations to move. And the United States was doing that um, throughout the 19th century, sending people west. The Russians were sending people across Siberia. The Germans were sending people into territories in Prussia and places like uh, that, that would eventually become... Um, you know, now modern day Poland, but at the same time they were they were settling those areas and trying to control them. They were doing that in in Alsace-Lorraine uh, along the French-German border, sending in German settlers to try to secure their control of this disputed border zone. It was normalized state behavior, and so the British didn't necessarily think anything of it to encourage uh, Jewish migration to Palestine. But the problem, of course, was there was an indigenous population of, of, of a group of people that would eventually become the Palestinian nation that now exists. And, and just as Israelis didn't exist in 1917, Palestinians as a coherent nationality also didn't quite exist either. There was an Arab uh, unity in that their language was similar, but there were different dialects and different um, religious traditions and localized traditions that mattered because it made it difficult for the community to have a united voice in the face of this immigration from Europe. And, and so it allowed the more united Zionist movement to have a, a coherent plan for buying up land and bringing in people. And meanwhile, the, the indigenous Arabs had less ability to push back on that. But it started to develop very quickly. You know, in 1917, we have the Balfour Declaration. And 20 years later, the Arab community has started to unite into what would be kind of the proto-Palestinian nation into the great Arab uprising of 1936 to 1939. And that's kind of the beginning of Palestinian nationalism right there is that great uprising uh, that really showcased that these two communities, they were, there was such a constrained geography that it was very difficult for them to share the land because there wasn't much land to share. Um, Zionists like to say things like, you know, it's a people without a land for a land without people. 
that might have been more true in the Negev Desert, but they weren't moving into the Negev Desert. They were moving into arable land that had been cultivated for thousands of years, and there, were, there was an indigenous population that, in a lot of cases, didn't actually own their land, that was renting their land from, from the Turks or from uh, wealthier Arabs in Syria, and they were buying it off of those folks rather than the people who actually lived there. And there was this process of, of displacement that was uh, naturally resulting in um, pushback from that localized community and turning a disparate indigenous population that was more divided by tribe and locality into a united nationality. And that's like the structures of the Zionists were building Israeli identity for all of these decades. And as they built Israeli identity by bringing people into the mandate, there was a counter reaction from Palestinians, what people who would become seen as Palestinians, uh, developing their own identity almost as a geopolitical foil to that. And as they said, well, we're being displaced, you know, we're not Jewish. So what are we? We're not, you know, part of the, the, the Saudi Arabian empire. We're not necessarily part of these new countries called Syria and Iraq that had just been carved out of the, uh, the Ottoman empire. So who are we? They started to define themselves by their, their locality, their geography. It became central to their identity that this piece of land, um, and Palestine actually comes from the Roman uh, provincial name for the area, which comes from the Philistines, who biblically, that's where Samson came from. It's all that, that uh, etymological development. They attach themselves specifically to that geography, again, bounded by those geographic borders that we'd already laid out in the north, the south, the east, the west, um, that made it so that that's where they saw themselves uh, as a nationality. And from there, we then moved into this cyclical phase of intermittent uh, Arab-Israeli violence that would result that was the result of, of uh, several different factors. The, the first was as the Israelis moved into this region and power vacuums began to emerge in the wake of World War II, as the British and the French were leaving the Middle East after World War II, it was one of the first places that they began to decolonize as their empires frayed. The Israelis moved into that power vacuum and asserted themselves to create a state, the Israeli state, in the War of Independence in 1948. That was in reaction to Arab states like Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, also trying to move into that same power vacuum and establish their own uh, uh, proxy state in that location. There, All of them were competing for, this is part of the reason the Arab armies failed in 1948, they couldn't agree on what their objectives were when they were fighting the Israelis. In spite of the fact that they were numerically superior, they should have been able to carry out a longer war of conquest. They were all out for their own localized objectives because they saw a power vacuum and they were trying to grab for their own national interests. And that division allowed the Israelis to pick off each army one by one until the state of Israel was formed uh, formally in 1948 and 1949 and it earns recognition from there. And a lot of the Arab states never abandoned this notion of creating a proxy state out of the old mandate of Palestine. The Palestinian people were developing their own nationality and their own their own identity in the course of this, but they hadn't developed to a point where they were able to have the agency that we now see now for, through groups like Hamas or the Palestinian Authority or Fatah. They were still in some ways proxies for Egypt, for Jordan, for Syria, for Lebanon, uh, whichever one of these states, and most notably it was Egypt and Jordan that were particularly using the Palestinians as proxies. And this helps us understand why Gaza even exists. The Gaza Strip is a, a geopolitical oddity 
because it has no natural resources. It has some fishing, it has some arable land, but there's no particular reason it should exist except for the geopolitical history of this region. And it is, it is a piece of territory that is technically part of the old British mandate of Palestine. And remember, the British drew that line. So why didn't the Israelis take over it in 1948? Well, it was because the Egyptian army had occupied that strip and a great deal of Palestinian refugees had fled to the safety of that area where the Egyptians were positioned. And as the Israelis were able to outflank them and overrun the strip, the Israelis had no interest in taking those refugees on. And they thought to themselves that this was a sufficient place to leave those, uh, those uh, refugees in place uh, while they look, were looked for a strategy to develop you know, working relations with their neighbors. The Egyptians, on the other hand, they had a different strategy where they decided that the Gaza Strip was going to become their base of operations for a proxy state against Israel. They turned it into this provisional Palestinian government um, that was essentially, it was, a Pal it was an Egyptian proxy um, that wasn't formally part of Egypt. Because if it had become formally part of Egypt, many of those Palestinian refugees might have moved into Egypt itself, where they might be remaining to this day. Um, either as refugees or they might have assimilated and become Egyptians. Either way, their identity would have been fundamentally different had they been annexed by uh, Egypt, the way the West Bank was annexed by Jordan after the war. That became part of Jordan, the whole West Bank, which helped a lot of Palestinian refugees move into Jordan itself. Now Jordan is a majority Palestinian population because of that decision to annex that territory in the 1940s and 50s. And so... The Gaza Strip was left in intentional limbo because Egypt's wider ambitions were to use it as a springboard to eventually defeat Israel, to establish a, a Palestinian state that would be a firm ally, or if not an ally, actually something of a subordinate uh, to Egypt in the long run. And then Egypt would be able to develop a land bridge for its greater ambitions, which was to unite Jordan and Lebanon and Syria into a pan-Arab state. So they saw it as a stepping stone to greater geopolitical ambitions. Problem was, they kept fighting wars that they couldn't win against the Israelis. And we have to fast forward all the way to the 1967 war, where the Egyptians are decisively defeated. The Israelis take control of the Gaza Strip. But once more, the Israelis don't have a strong interest in annexing the territory immediately. They don't have a solution for the refugees that are still living there, that are growing in population. And the Egyptians, having been defeated in that war, once more don't want to take in any more refugees. And by the 60s, most Arab countries had already decided that the Palestinians had become a developed enough identity that they didn't want them to move into their territories, uh, that they didn't want to take in those refugee populations anymore. After the 50s, the Arab tolerance to bring in refugees diminished significantly as, Arab, as Palestinian nationalism started to grow up and a, a distinct Palestinian identity emerges in that time frame. And places like Jordan are kind of a good example of what that process was like because as Palestinian nationalism became stronger, eventually Palestinian factions launched an uprising and there was a short civil war between the Jordanian government and these Palestinian factions in black September of 1970. And that was like the underlying of why Arab states stopped wanting to take Palestinian refugees in. And that affects decisions to this day. It's part of the reason that Egypt and Jordan and the Saudis and the Emiratis are refusing to take in Gazan refugees because of that concern that this is an identity that is tied to a specific geography and that they won't assimilate into their own populations and that more importantly, you know, that their own populations will reject them and that there will be discord between them. And so there is a 
a pragmatic angle of this, of this emergence of Palestinian nationalism that sort of locks refugees into specific geographies now. And it's, it's something of a, of, of a tragedy of living within the Gaza Strip is that as identity has become more firmly rooted, the more difficult it is to be flexible with some of those populations. Not to skip ahead too far, but can you talk a little bit about the Iranian revolution and how that informs some of like the key players today and what their strategies are? Right. And, you know, I think that's a really good segue into this. The Islamic revolution was this almost, uh, I don't know if it was the crescendo, but it was a high point for the in, the uh, uh, emergence of Islamic fundamentalism. What that meant was this upswell of religious feeling throughout the region that sort of overwhelmed a lot of secular powers. And it transformed the Israeli-Palestinian conflict from a conflict of Israel versus its Arab neighbors, all battling for the power vacuum that the British had left behind, into an ideological struggle between Israel and these Islamic fundamentalists, between the Wests and these Islamic fundamentalists, between, in some cases, uh, it's supplanted some of the old previous dynamics in which the, a lot of these states had been subsumed into the Cold War. Israel had become an American ally to balance Soviet-backed Syria and Egypt. And it started to break that Cold War paradigm, that power vacuum paradigm, and transform it into this ideological struggle that we see now. And ideological struggles are particularly tricky to resolve because people come to these ideological battles with maximalist demands. They, they demand that they get, it's my way or the highway, I get everything and you get nothing, um, because that's how true believers tend to behave. And it makes it very difficult for negotiations to come forward. Whereas the, the uh, Arab-Israeli and the state-on-state the -state conflict era of Israel's relations with its neighbors came to an end through diplomacy with treaties with Egypt and Jordan and, to a certain extent, deterrence with Lebanon and Syria that are technically still at war with Israel. But nevertheless, there's a, there's a relationship in which we know that there won't be a Lebanese or Syrian invasion of Israel anytime soon. That gave way to this ideological struggle. And the vanguards of it were militias like Hezbollah, eventually Hamas, all of them inspired by ideological feeling in which they either want to lead Palestinian nationalism, like Hamas does, or they want to take political advantage of it, like Hezbollah does. So Hezbollah says, we are a religious entity. Um, religiously, we are committed to the restoration of an Arab state within the former mandate of, of Palestine. Um, and as a result, that compels us to carry out attacks on Israel, even if Israel hasn't necessarily attacked us um, in the course of conflicts like we're seeing in the Gaza war. So it was an ideological hinge point, transformation of, of the way that the conflict moved forward, which makes it the ultimate resolution of Israeli, um, the, the Israeli-Arab and really the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the Israeli-Iranian conflict become much more difficult to disentangle so long as those ideologies are in place. And it also inspired a, an ideological reaction with Israel itself. Um, whereas Israelis of the 50s, 60s, and 70s were able to use traditional methods of warfare to create deterrence, to eventually degrade enemies, and finally sign treaties in the way that traditional statecraft is carried out. This emergence of Islamic fundamentalism as an ideology that just opposed the very existence of Israel as a permanent basis meant that there was also a growing uh, uh, a trend of right-wing ideologies within Israel itself, which rejected the existence of groups like 
Hezbollah or the Iranian government as it exists now. Um, it does, and and then also began to see things through the prism of expansionism, of buffer states, of greater Israel, of of giving up on things like diplomacy and using military force more often and more a more concerted method, and also the rise of of settlerism, which is this idea of the if Israel can't secure its buffer states through treaties, it can secure its buffer states by doing what states have done from time immemorial, changing the demographics. Displacing people and replacing them with their own loyalists or their own citizens is, is an ideological approach to solving strategic problems. And um, the idea of their borders being drawn on an ideological basis is also something that has become more and more enforced, whereas previous generations of Israelis were willing to be flexible on the borders if it gave them peace. This new hardline faction of Israelis that began to emerge in reaction to the Iranian revolution, they are more and more inflexible as to which the borders they would finally accept. And they are the primary obstacle to a Palestinian state emerging today uh, because it, it's not so much that they might necessarily say that a Palestinian state isn't workable or that it absolutely will fall to Hamas. It's also a basis of religious and ideological feeling that they believe that they are predetermined to have control of these territories. Just as groups like Hamas and Hezbollah believe that they are predetermined to have control of the territories that Israel holds right now. So to kind of wrap us up, I know we're running out of time, um, but just to bring us back to the present, how do all these different factors and beliefs and ideologies culminate and, I guess, move us forward? Like, what's next? What are the different scenarios that are likely this year and beyond? And I guess, how likely are they? Yeah, I know. I think... First, we think about our geographic drivers, that there's a geographic box driven around this conflict and that there's these nationalist boxes, you know, drawn around this conflict as well. So places like the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, they're going to continue to exist in some form or another. And for, the for that matter, so is Israel. So neither side is going to wipe the other side out or replace the other side. That's, that's, those are not within the realms of realistic possibility. So since they're stuck with one another, what options do they have? Well, for one thing, we have seen in previous kind of like settler colonial wars, like the United States moving westward, it was expulsion and replacement. That isn't an option for the Israelis. They can't do that option uh, because no one's going to take in the Palestinians. Israel doesn't have the ability to get away with the same sort of strategy that the U.S. carried out uh, against the Native Americans without risking isolation that would cripple it. It's too small. The U.S. could do these sorts of things because it was a massive country and because other countries didn't care what happened to the Native Americans. That isn't true for the Israelis. So they've got that constraint of forcing them into negotiations. And for that matter, the Palestinians don't have anybody backing them who are willing to allow them to carry out a long-term military campaign that could replace Israel. So what do they decide to do? There are, you know, a couple of outcomes that, that I think are foreseeable over the next 10 to 20 to even 30 or 40, 50 years down the line. The first is something of an unsteady status quo where these cycles of violence are just the characteristics of the region. The ideologies don't shift. In fact, they become more hardened and both sides carry out these acts of violence and they indulge in them every once in a while and it's atrocious humanitarian outcomes. And then they go back to a status quo, rebuild and prepare for the next round. And they do that over and over again until they enter a situation where the ideologies are exhausted, in which far-right Israeli uh, ideologies are no longer popular, in which far-right Palestinian ideologies like Hamas have discredited themselves. And they could do that for decades. They really could 
um, because we are still in kind of the midpoint of what we might consider the ideological lifespan of, of this movement. If Islamic fundamentalism began in the 70s, it could have a lifespan of up to 100 years or, or 70 years, the way that we've seen ideologies like communism lasted only about 70 years before it burned itself out. And so they only last a few generations. So we could see a few more generations of this, the status quo repeating itself over and over again. We also could see breakthroughs in which one ideology weakens before the other. And if it's on the Israeli side, because the Israelis are the, are the, ideolo are, are the political power, the geopolitical power that control most of the conditions on the ground, if the far right and the right wing Israeli ideological trend begins to weaken for whatever reason, that could open the door for concessions for a Palestinian state that might change the dynamics. It might not end all violence, but it could change some of those dynamics to make it so that we don't go through these massive escalations over and over again for the next few decades. And the outcomes of that, it could mean that you end up with a Palestinian, almost a reservation is what I've seen people propose it as, but that it is a Palestinian state in which it doesn't have an army, it has just police forces, it, it doesn't have control of its borders, the Israelis run that, the Israelis are able to run operations through those territories permanently uh, in order to prevent the emergence of Hamas, but that Palestinians have, have greater freedom to travel and, and greater economic freedom and greater political freedom to uh, participate in their own localized governments. That is an option. It's not exactly the best option, but it is something that seems to be more likely than anything else uh, because it allows the Israelis to claim that their security concerns are assuaged. Um, but it's also possible that if you see both the far right and the far in Israel and in Palestine, both weaken, you could enter a, p a position where both sides are more conciliatory and a two-state solution becomes more equitable, more, more likely and more equitable. And that two-state solution could still involve some disarmament clauses for the Palestinians, but it could mean that they have control of their borders. It could mean that they are able to travel freely through Israel, that they have visa-free agreements. That sort of thing could happen um, over time if we see those ideologic, uh, ideologies weaken on those two sides. And the final thing is you could see almost ideological swings, which do happen from time to time in response to shocks. Hard to say what the shock would be, but if there's a shock that reinvigorates kind of your liberal leftism in both Israel and Palestine concurrent, concurrently, you could see solutions uh, being proposed like a one-state solution in which a, it's a binational state, a unitary state in which both populations uh, live in this binational state as, as political equals. And the Israelis have a version of this already where about 10% of their population is Israeli Arab, and there are Israeli Arabs in, in the, the Knesset, and they're able to vote, and they have the right to free speech and all these other things. Um, but it would mean the end of Israel as a Jewish state, but to a liberal or left-wing population in Israel, that might not matter to them. That might not be something that would bother them necessarily. But again, that's probably our most far-fetched scenario because you need to see some sort of shock that turns people from this you know, right-leaning population that they are now into this liberal and internationalist group that, that seems almost unfathomable, but that is one of the ways that it resolves. So those are kind of the three ways that, you know, those geographic and ideological boxes kind of draw forward our scenarios. And, you know, right now sitting here, cycles of violence look the most likely, but the idea that perhaps Israel may moderate in the future and allow a Palestinian state to come into fruition, I think that that's also still in the cards. And then just never rule out that that's something like, you know, liberalism and leftism is able to uh, uh, make a resurgence in both countries to the point where uh, a unitary state is possible.
Thank you very much, Ryan. As usual, you can read all of our content by subscribing to our geopolitical or security intelligence products. Our suite of risk products allow clients to access the insights and analyses they need to make more informed decisions and drive better risk outcomes. You can sign up or learn more on our website at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emma Kami. Thanks for listening.